You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from student minister Andrew Beal. So I wanted to begin uh, the morning with, with a story. Uh, in 1985, mountain climbers Joe Simpson and Simon Yates set out to reach the summit of Ciula Grande. That's a uh, mountain peak in the Andes mountain range down in Peru. And they wanted to uh, reach the summit by way of the western face, the west face, which had never been, a, had never been ascended in that way before. And they were successful in their ascent. They reached the summit and... Most like with many, if you know anything about mountain climbing, most of the accidents or tragedies happen on the descent on the way down, and uh, this one was no different. In fact, it's become legendary in how this unfolded. Already dealing with bad weather, their trip had taken a couple days longer than initially anticipated. They had run out of stove fuel by this point, and the daylight was fading. Their kind of uh, less-than-ideal situation took a turn for the worse when... Uh, Simpson, he slipped on some ice, fell down a cliff, and broke his leg, shattered his right leg when his tibia went right into that kneecap joint. So it's just the two of them. No one knows exactly where they are. They only have each other to, to depend on. So the next move is for Yates to come up with a system. He lowers Simpson uh, off of what he thinks is a ridge to ground below by tying two 150-foot lengths of rope together, making a 300-foot rope. However, you know, with that knot in the middle, that kind of creates a small uh, complication. It meant that, you know, once Simpson was lowered to that 150-foot mark, they would ha- he would have to stand up, you know, kind of create some slack in the rope, um, kind of move the knot to the other side just because that knot cannot move through the lowering device, and that way he'd be able to go down that remaining 150 feet and keep on descending. But there was a problem. There was a, even a storm rolling in, and the darkness was falling. And Yates had no idea that accidentally he had lowered Simpson off of the edge of a cliff and he was just dangling in midair with nothing to do for himself. He could not help himself at all. He could not see Simpson. He could not hear Simpson. All he knew was that Simpson still had all of his weight on the rope and that was not part of the plan. So the new situation was, you know, Simpson and Yates, they were tied together. Simpson could not climb back up the rope because uh, he was, frostbite was setting in in a very big way, and just being exposed to the weather and the elements and the temperature. Yates could not pull him back up. He was in a fixed position in the snow. He couldn't compromise that position without risk of falling or slipping himself. You know, we know that Simpson could not be lowered any further because of that knot, and also if he were, he would just, you know, fall into nothingness. And they could not communicate. So after remaining in that position for as long as he possibly could, Yates had a decision to make. Both he and Simpson could plummet off the edge of that cliff, or Yates could cut the rope and save his own life, not knowing exactly what happened to Simpson. What he did was he did, in fact, cut the rope in saving his own life. And what he did, he sent uh, Simpson down uh, below into the glacier into a very, very deep ice crevice. And the next morning, you know, daylight come up, the t- storm had passed. Yates was able to descend the mountain, and when he got to the bottom, he could see what had happened, you know, the night before, the error they had made in judgment. And he sees this uh, ice crevice that Simpson had likely fallen down into, and he called and called for Simpson, but there was no answer, so he rightfully assumed that he had died from the fall. 
So he just descends the mountain himself and goes on to base camp. But Simpson, miraculously, was alive. Somehow he had survived that 150-foot drop, at least probably even more than that, even with his right leg still broken. When he woke up, when he regained consciousness that next morning, he saw that the rope was cut, and he realized that Yates would likely think that he was dead. So Simpson was now all alone in this ice crevice with no hope of rescue. And he certainly couldn't climb out, one with the ice, that just would be impossible to climb up, but also, again, he had his broken leg. And he was left with, what am I going to do now? Am I going to try and survive, or am I just going to wait for death to come? So we're ending this five-week series called Victory, and this morning we're going to be pretty much camped out in Joshua 6, at least as far as Joshua goes. And uh, along with some other passages, but the entire theme that ties the book of Joshua together is that time and time again, faith is where the victory is. With Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land, up to this point, we've seen God give Joshua victory after victory after victory. But the thing is, Joshua has only been victorious because of his faith. That has been the defining factor. Any victory he's had of any kind has been because of his faith and the faith of the Israelites. So I'm going to show my hand right now. Typically, you know, if you're in my position, you don't like to like, you know, make the big reveal for what the morning's about till the end. But I figured we'd show our hand right now and just say uh, that the best victories come with faith. Kind of the line of the morning is faith in Jesus is where the victory is. That's kind of what's tying us all together this weekend. Now, up to this point, any victory we've talked about with these past four weeks of messages, it has always been a definitive faith victory. But today, as we look at the Israelites taking the city of Jericho, not only do we see a faith victory, but this is the first time that we see a military victory as well. And that's going to be more and more as the book of Joshua goes on. So let's take a look at Joshua 6. It'll be up on the screen. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. And when you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can, Then the walls of the town will collapse, and the people can charge straight into the town. Already before Joshua leads anyone to take over this military fort of Jericho, the people inside its walls, they're already terrified. You know, they've been hearing rumors, they've been hearing rumblings, you know, around the uh, geographic area about uh, this God and his people and just all that he's capable of. You know, what's been happening is becoming the stuff of legend, and they are afraid to the point of the entire city being on lockdown. You can feel just the fear and the anxiety in the atmosphere in Jericho. And just like he always has and he always will in the book of Joshua, God assures Joshua of his promise that he will be with him. Now, on hearing the words that God just gave to Joshua as far as how he's going to take this city, on hearing those words for the first time, you would be right to think that's the most ridiculous military strategy I've ever heard in my life. 
See, he doesn't give uh, any, Joshua any like conventional words of wisdom. He doesn't give him you know, secret blueprints of how to build a trebuchet or even a cannon or a battering ram. He doesn't you know, point out, hey, here are the weak points in the foundation of the wall. He doesn't do anything like that. You know, if we were taking a class, you know, taking cities 101, this material would not be in because it was just, it's just so ridiculous. Anyone with a good head on their shoulder, they wouldn't even think of something like this. He tells Joshua to have, you know, a parade around the city six times, once a day for six days in a row, and then march around it seven times on the seventh day. And then on that seventh day, have the priests, seven priests, blow a horn each, that's seven horns, and then have the people yell really, really loud. Then the walls will come down, you're going to walk right in. If I'm Joshua and I'm hearing this, my first words are, are you kidding me? This is the big plan you have for our victory. Walk around the city a few times, blow some trumpets, and yell. God's like, yeah, that's it. And Joshua doesn't question this at all. One thing Joshua understands that maybe uh, we in this room have trouble understanding as, uh, or something that we miss sometimes, is that faith in God can often look ridiculous, especially through the eyes of the world. We're not going to have them on the screen if you want to read them on your own later, uh, verses 6 through 15. But in those verses, Joshua, he's giving the people and the priests some even more unique instructions on exactly how to march around the city. And that when they do, no one is to talk at all. No one's to make a sound, not one peep out of anyone when they're doing the parade thing. Uh, So I'm about to pick up in verse 16. And in this section, you're going to hear mention of Rahab the prostitute. Uh, Just a few uh, weeks ago, Roger gave a message entitled Risque Faith out of Joshua 2, and that chapter saw two spies from the Israelite camp infiltrating the walls of Jericho just to kind of get an idea of what the Israelites were up against when they were eventually going to take Jericho themselves. And when they were there, there was a uh, prostitute living and working in Jericho named Rahab, and she took on the role of uh, hiding the spies. And because of her kindness and her faith in what God was going to do, the spies assured her that her and her family would be saved whenever the Israelites came to capture Jericho. And that's happening in Joshua 6. So verse 16, I'm picking up. The seventh time around, it's the day of, the seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast of their horns, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury." And when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. Suddenly, the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with all her family. And the men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. 
Then the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. Right after this in years following, can you imagine the retelling of this tale? You know, children would ask, you know, this story. How, were, how was the city of Jericho taken? How, you know, when these walls came tumbling down, those who were there, and you couldn't, you know, there's the only way that happened, those who were there would have to say, yeah, we walked around the city with the ark, you know, 13 times over the course of the week and yelled as loud as we could at the very end. Sounds like nonsense. If I were a kid hearing that story, I'd call him a liar. Just, I want a new story. But nonsense or not, when faith is working, ridiculous things do happen. My freshman year at a college at a uh, Christian university in Illinois, it saw its fair share of ridiculous. I lived in what was called Timothy Hall with about 80 other guys. And to give you an idea of what Timothy Hall was like, uh, Timothy Hall was also known as The Hole. Back in the 60s, it got its name uh, because the town fire marshal, he came in, did some inspections, and on his way out, he just said, my gosh, what a hole. And that, t- that, uh, that name obviously stuck, and we adopted that proudly. And if there is such a thing as a Christian fraternity, then I was proudly part of one, and we were called Holers, proudly. And the Holer fraternity, you know, we had officers, and we had these biannual dues, and we also had a number of traditions, which, like many fraternities, I am bound by solemn oath. I can never share these with anyone outside of the brotherhood. But we also had what were called Holer holidays, and just to give you an idea of, you know, the culture, the atmosphere I was part of, uh, one such holiday was just called Lava Day. You know, much like small children will jump from couch to couch, pretending the rug is or the carpet is lava. So we had the same thing. All the sidewalks were lava. You had to jump from patch of grass to patch of grass. And typically there were just only a few remaining by the end of the night. I remember there was also, and we had like a holiday for every week, people. But there was also like uh, Lumberjack Day. Not only did we dress the part for the day, but also Monty Python's famous Lumberjack song was played on loop, you know, ad nauseum for the t- full 24 hours. This is what I was a part of, and I miss it. But there was bad news from day one for the whole, at least my freshman year, because after my freshman year, the school, they were going to convert Timothy Hall into classrooms and offices. And all who lived in Timothy Hall were going to be moved into Alumni Hall, which currently housed all the girls on campus, which meant the next year all the girls were going to be moved into Ruth Hall, which was currently under construction. Beautiful building. It's still the most beautiful piece, the, the, most, uh, the best building on campus now. But it was in the very early stages of constructions when I first arrived on campus in the fall of 06. Now, there was talk amongst the holers that the only way Timothy Hall could remain a guy's dorm and keep the fraternity intact was if Ruth Hall never, ever, ever completed construction. So inspired by Joshua, we went forward with our bold plan. At 4.30 p.m. every day, an army of approximately 80 holers advanced on Ruth Hall. We had our robes, we had our musical instruments, we even had a homemade makeshift Ark of the Covenant, and we marched around the construction site of Ruth Hall for six days in a row, absolute silence. And then on the seventh day, even though the administration asked us not to, we walked around (laughs) seven times in a row with the hope that when it was all said and done, the structure might collapse, leading to a definitive holer victory. So at the end of that seventh trip around, we blew into our horns and shouted with all the breath in our lungs, and nothing happened. And we were actually a little disappointed. Part of us thought this might really work. 
But really, nothing should have happened, even from the beginning, because God was never a part of this, not even a little bit. Of course, when we were talking afterwards, like, you know, maybe if we just yelled a little bit louder, this could have happened. So I'm a curious guy, you know, speaking of yelling louder, I got curious about, you know, how much sound, you know, in reality, would it take to make these walls of Jericho actually come crashing down? So luckily enough, I found a podcast put out by Radiolab back in the fall of 2010 that measured exactly how many decibels it would take. They had on their engineer and sound expert David Lubman, and he reports that it would require 177 decibels minimum to take down Jericho. Now, to give you an idea, we're going to learn about decibels this morning. Give you an idea, without the microphone, I'm talking between 60 and 65 decibels. And if you're like me, you're like, oh, so I just got to talk, you know, three times as loud, roughly, and the walls have come down. No, I've learned that decibels don't work, you know, in that way at all. Uh, just measuring sounds, it's just a little bit different. So, like, if I were yelling at my loudest, I'd probably, you know, fall in the mid-80s mid as far as decibels go. Uh, a lawnmower, when it's running, it's, it hits about 90 decibels. Uh, when it's not running, it's, it's zero. <clears throat> but a live rock and roll show, it's around 110 decibels. And if you're you know, on the runway at the airport, you know, Dayton International, down in Cincinnati, if you are 25 meters away from the jet taking off, that is 150 decibels, and that's your eardrums rupturing. And again, science says 177 decibels, decibels and Jericho's coming down. You're like, okay, so you, can't, you can only yell so loud. But what about these ram's horns that they were carrying, these shofars that they were holding on? They had seven of those. Scripture says there were seven of them. For our purposes today, you know, they sound very similar to trumpets. So they did some measuring. One shofar alone is at 96 decibels when it's at its loudest. And they measured two shofars. That's at 99 decibels. They say if you just need to go up three decibels, you need to double the sound of whatever you currently have. Now, Scripture says there are only seven of these things, but even eight shofars, that only gets you to 104 decibels at full blast. So, you know, you're, we're dealing with nerds here when they're, you know, decibels. So they did their calculations, they did their math, and they came at, you know, how many people blowing horns would you actually need? <clears throat> they would need, at a bare minimum, 407,380 horn players would be needed to take down this wall. That's, four, that's five rose bowls of trumpet players. So... Even if you had at your disposal that many trumpet players, you wouldn't be able to get them all close enough together to the wall to point out one exact, the same point at the wall to make it come down. It is spatially impossible. But even if you were to be able to solve that problem miraculously, what would happen, just to give you the power of what would be required, all the trumpet players in the front row would have their heads blown off. (laughs) So how did these walls come down? What was the factor? How do we actually explain this? And the answer is actually in the Bible itself. It's in the New Testament. It comes from Hebrews 11. 11.30, it says, It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days, and the walls came crashing down. Hebrews 11, it's famously known, kind of informally, as the Hall of Faith chapter, where the writer gives example after example of what faith looks like and what faith can actually do. This is how that chapter starts out. It says, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And by faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. 
Uh, I got dinner on Thursday night with one of my former students. Uh, we went to uh, Waffle House on 73. I don't know how often you frequent the Waffle House, but I'm there often enough with students. And we got to talking about Jesus and church, and we got to the subject of just, you know, frustrations that he had. You know, what frustrates him most about Christianity? He would call himself a Jesus follower, but, you know, we all have our frustrations. And he says the biggest frustration that comes with it is just all the doubts that go along with this. And he gave examples of some things in the Bible that just sound ridiculous or unbelievable to him. And a lot of his comments had a lot of merit. They had a lot of weight. These were thought out. These were genuine, honest thoughts. But I told him something about doubt. You know, many people believe that the number one reason people reject Jesus, reject Christianity, reject the faith, is because of doubt. And that's really not the case. It's close. But the number one killer of faith isn't doubt. It is unexpressed doubt. It's the doubts that we have that we don't share with others, and it's the hard questions that we keep to ourselves that we're afraid to say out loud Often enough, it just chokes our... You know, if you talk to anyone that has a journey of, you know, they were once a devoted Jesus follower, could be found in the church building or involved in a ministry, you know, multiple times a week, and they're just as far away from God as possible, typically it goes that, you know, it wasn't an overnight decision. They could tell you that their faith was slowly choked out over a number of maybe even years. And it's typically unexpressed doubt that does that. Now, I hope this doesn't make anyone nervous, but I've been doing this for years. I always tell my students to lean into the doubts, talk about them, think about them. One, I think, you know, I know that God can handle it, but also I think we've all been given really, really, you know, good brains and we, should, we ought to use it. You know, I think the best, most honest, deepest, genuine faith comes from those who win at faith with some critical thinking. You know, it's, it's actually those who just kind of eat this stuff up with a spoon and don't ask any questions about it that kind of make me more nervous than anything else. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, he, he has written this. He says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Uh, I'd like to redefine, maybe re-understand faith for us um, this morning. Many of us, you know, we just had this understanding that faith is belief. Having faith in God is believing in God. And that's actually only about half of what faith is. And it's not even the most exciting or important part. Here's what faith is. Faith is a coming together in equal parts, you know, having this relationship. It's a coming together of both belief and trust. If we look back in original languages where the Bible was written, faith is a marriage of belief and trust. They go together. You know, so many people, they believe in God, but they don't trust him. And for those of us who know, trust is where the relationship is. And we know that the trust is where that awesome, ridiculous, unbelievable, life-altering things can happen. The trust is really the defining factor in what makes faith so awesome, what makes faith so attractive. You know, to reread it with this, you know, again, that verse. It was by belief and trust that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. Belief and trust. What we see happening in Joshua 6 is what happens when God is on a mission and his people actually believe and trust in him and exactly what he's been saying. This is what happens when faith is at work. And what I love most about this is, you know, God gave them instructions so outrageous that when they actually, you know, did it, obeyed it to the letter and it worked, it could only be said that it was God alone who did this. You know, hearing the story, you know that the people didn't do anything themselves to make this happen. 
Faith in God, that's where the victory came through. You know, we know even today that parades around cities, they don't win battles, and the sound of seven trumpets, they don't win battles. I said before, you know, without faith, there are no victories in the book of Joshua. Faith is where the victory is. You know, that's, you know, the theme, that's the thread running through the entire morning. So we left Joe Simpson all alone in that ice crevice. We'll go back and get him. Joe Simpson, he's in this ice crevice. He's all alone. He has no way out. He still has his broken leg. And he couldn't wait for rescue because rightfully his climbing partner, Simon Yates, thinks he's dead. And he has options. He could stay where he was and wait for death, or he had another option. He could go even deeper into the crevice to see if there was a way out down there. And as the story goes, there was... He lowered himself and found a small exit out of the crevice as far as you know, the rope would take him. And after three more days of crawling and hopping with no food and very little water, he made the five-mile trip over uneven and dangerous terrain, battling even more ice crevices, and he got back to base camp exhausted and delirious. And he actually arrived at base camp just hours before Simon Yates had intended to leave to go back to civilization. And if you read this or explore this on your own, you know that Simpson's survival is one of the most legendary survival stories in all of mountaineering. And not long after that, in 1985, he wrote a book about his experience, and that book was later made into a docudrama for film. Both are called Touching the Void, if you want to check it out. I know at one time it was on Netflix. I don't know if it is right now. But here is what uh, Joe Simpson said about his decision to survive. He says, you got to make decisions you got to keep making decisions, even if they're wrong decisions. Short of dying on the ledge, my only chance was to lower myself deeper into the crevice. I didn't know what I would find down there. I was just hoping there might be some way out of the labyrinth of ice and snow. And I really struggled to make that decision. I was so scared of going deeper. The other option was just to sit there, blindly hoping that somehow it might get better, And I just knew it wasn't going to get better. I didn't want to look down. I was horrified at the thought that it was just empty down there. I didn't put a knot near the end of the rope. And if there was nothing down there, I wouldn't be able to hold the rope, and then I would fall, and it would be quick. People, faith is like that. Faith is very much being scared of going deeper into emptiness with hope that life is at the bottom. Can I read to you guys about Jesus? You know, there's this, uh, just how faith in him is the ultimate victory against anything and everything we might come across. This is from Romans 5. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Uh, We're about to do the communion thing here. Uh, But 
you know, there are so many, you know, wonderful things about this passage I've just read. And honestly, we could do, you know, entire sermon series or message series on this. But today, this weekend, this phrase that I'm loving that's sticking out is from verse 6. It says, Christ came at just the right time. And how faith often, uh, or that chance for faith, or when faith really comes in clutch, it comes at just the right time. So, uh, you know, every week, you know, one of the things that we hold to a high value here at Southwest is this time of practicing communion. Uh, Some look at this as remembering Jesus in his death and sacrifice. Some say, you know, it's even participating in that. And we can, you know, we can be treated as a number of things, um, often just a time of thanks. But I want us to concentrate and think on this word faith. We use it every weekend, which when you do that something with such regularity, it can become tired. So I want us to remember that, you know, this important, all-important word faith is that coming together of trust and belief. But in this time, I want us to really focus on this trust part. In your private time of remembrance, in your private time of gratitude, uh, examine that word. And what is your trust level with Jesus at this very moment? Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we want to love you even more. You know, we come together like this because we think that faith can make a difference. And not only a difference, but we want to believe even more and more that it makes the difference. So as we uh, join in remembrance of what your son did for us, that in this bread we remember his uh, broken body and this juice, his shed blood, all for us that we get to enjoy this undeserved privilege, as Paul writes, and that we get to share in your glory now and for eternity as well. So we give the time uh, to your Holy Spirit to in turn do to us and for us exactly what we need. So we ask that and pray that expectantly and faithfully and boldly. It's in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.